Welcome to It's a Crime, I'm Linda, and today we're gonna to be talking about Melanie Pulowski, also known as Melanie Boudreaux. I'm also gonna take a look at her timeline and also her husband's, both Brandon Boudreaux and Ian Pulowski. Many of you have commented that she must know more than she's letting on. So today, we're gonna to talk about it. But before I get into it, if you'd like to be part of the It's a Crime community, please click that subscribe button and hit that notification bell. Also, make sure you click all. If you'd also like to be part of my brand new membership, you can click the join button that's just right beside the subscribe button or look in the description also below. Click the like button if you support this video and share this out where you can. Now, let's get into it. As most of you know, Melanie is Lori Vallow Daybell's niece. And Melanie was born in April 1989 to her mom, Stacy Cox Cope. Stacy died when she was 31 years old in 1998. And Stacy and Lori's brother Adam actually wrote a book and in it he referenced Stacy and said, Stacy had passed away while living with my parents in San Antonio, Texas. She had gone through a terrible divorce. And Melanie was only nine years old when her mom passed away and it was said that she died from diabetic shock. And Lori was 24 years at the time when her sister passed away. Now this is also what Adam wrote in his book. Stacy suffered from a rare form of diabetes type 1 that she contracted during her pregnancy at age 22. Her style of diabetes was called gastroparesis, which prevented her from absorbing nutrients from her stomach into her bloodstream. When Stacy passed away while I was in Arkansas, a part of me passed away also. Just in this past month in April, Melanie celebrated her 31st birthday and she reinstated her Facebook account and posted a lengthy post and in it she did talk about her father and her mother and she said that when she was at six years old, her father took her away from her mom. So I'll just read you this little excerpt. While I was also unjustly taken away from my mother at age six and told all manner of lies about her, I stand here today grateful knowing about her. I stand here today grateful knowing that no one and no lie can take me away from the bond of my mother who has laid to rest since I was nine. It's been a hard lesson to learn that I could not put faith in court systems, authorities, or most people. The Lord has been on my side and he has strengthened me through all of this. No one can take away the peace and truth that he brings. And by this, I know that my children will always know in their hearts who their mother is and that I will be reunited with them. I hope they, like I, can learn how to forgive and love all those who have hurt us. This is only possible through the Savior's atonement. His love is more powerful than anything. This took me a while to learn to forgive my own father, but I have nothing but love and gratitude in my heart this day and for the many who have betrayed me even though restitution has not been made. Now fast forward 10 years later in 2008, Melanie and Brandon Boudreaux get married and they have four children together over the years. Fast forward again to June 2019, Melanie and Brandon were currently living in Arizona and Melanie had been married for 11 years at this point. And she starts spending a lot of time with Lori and their religious group. And in June, she suddenly tells her husband Brandon that she wants a divorce. And he's shocked. And this is what he's quoted saying, I thought I had a happy marriage, so it was pretty overwhelming. And Brandon believes that it was because of Melanie's new religious beliefs after following Lori and Chad, and Brandon actually refers to it as a cult. 
And he says, I just don't know how people can get so wrapped up that they can end up in this space where these people are. It's just so radical, so different. And in a court document that is filed in connection with a custody battle with the four children, Brandon actually says that Melanie is involved in a cult where numerous members, adults and children alike, have been being killed off like flies. But Melanie has repeatedly been denying this. And Melanie's lawyer actually said, Melanie Pulowski has never been part of a cult. And the attorney also made a statement saying, she may understand some of the extremist beliefs of her aunt, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, but that does not mean that she has adopted those beliefs as her own. Melanie does not judge those who accept these extremist beliefs, just like she does not judge you or me for what we believe. Melanie holds onto her core beliefs as an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So in June, she asks Brandon for a divorce, and her future husband that she has not met yet gets a divorce to his wife, Natalie. Now, on July 11th, 2019, Melanie's uncle Charles dies and by September, Aunt Lori, the children, Uncle Alex, all moved to Rexburg, Idaho. And it is unclear if she went for the ride or not. There's some mixed reviews. Some say a friend went. Some say it was Melanie Gibb. I'm thinking it was Melanie Pulowski or Melanie Boudreau, but stay tuned and I'll get to the bottom of that. Now, after they moved to Rexburg, September 8th, this is the last time that Melanie's younger cousin, Tylee Ryan, was officially seen at Yellowstone National Park. And September 23rd is the last day that JJ was officially last seen at his school in Rexburg. On October 2nd, Brandon Boudreau has an attempt made on his life. Around 7.20 a.m., Brandon, who at this point has been separated for four months from Melanie, takes his two older children to school and then takes his two younger children to a custody exchange with Melanie. And then he goes to the gym and returns home approximately at 9.13 a.m. That's when he was shot at. And in a court document, it says this. On October 2nd, 2019, father left his home at approximately 7.20 a.m. to drop the older children off at school and exchange the younger children with mother. After the exchange, instead of immediately returning home to work, father went to the gym and did not arrive back at his home until approximately 9.13 a.m. Upon father's return to his home, a vehicle was parked out front of father's residence and when father passed the vehicle, the individual inside of the vehicle fired a shot towards the driver's side front window of father's vehicle, hitting the vehicle just inches above father's head and shattering his window. The shooter then proceeded to flee the area. Father immediately called 911 and Gilbert police dispatched close to 20 officers to father's residence where they shut down father's street for most of the day to investigate the crime. And then it says see photograph of father's Tesla with bullet hole and broken window attached. Now notable, at first Brandon actually thought this was a paintball gun because of the sound it made, but when he checks out his car and examines it, he sees the bullet hole and realizes it's a real gun with a silencer. And the shooter is driving a vehicle matching the description of Tylee's Jeep that she drove, but the Jeep was actually caught on CCTV and later it was confirmed that the Jeep was registered to Charles Vallow and the one that Tylee actually normally drives. 
Brandon suspects that it was Alex driving. Brandon then goes into hiding with his four children. Now what's notable that same day is later on in that afternoon back in Rexburg, Chad is seen on camera at Lori's storage unit. She actually rented it the day before. And Chad pulls a tire out of the back of Lori's car and rolls it into the storage unit. And then Chad and Lori go and they take out a removable car seat and put it in the storage unit. Then Lori and Chad shut the door and leave. Now, Nate Eaton from East Idaho News was talking about this footage and he said that it could be that the back seat was from the Jeep. And also he said, that the tire you'd have to take it off of the back in order to get the window down so it does make sense it could be from the jeep that this tire was from and also that the rear seat was from and in the dateline special melanie was asked about what her thoughts were about brandon boudreaux getting shot at and keith asked her if she asked Alex if it was him that shot Brandon and Melanie actually started giggling and she said yeah I actually asked him and she said that Alex made jokes about how insane it would be to shoot somebody in broad daylight and to shoot him from a recognizable car. Now another thing that's interesting is in a memo from Melanie's current husband Ian Pulowski, it said that Lori and Chad said that Brandon was possessed and Alex may need to take a shot at Brandon in order to take care of the Lord's purpose of what needs to happen. And Chad and Lori apparently told Melanie that Tylee and JJ had become possessed by zombies and they needed to die. Melanie also said to Ian that Alex had great faith and that he never wavered in the trust in the Lord and no task was too difficult for him to accomplish. Now the next day on October 3rd, Lori and Alex are seen together at the storage unit and Alex removes the tire and the seat from the storage unit and puts them into the car. Six days later, Chad's wife Tammy has an attempt made on her life in her driveway and she thought it was also a paintball gun and she went to Facebook to talk about it but from the sounds of it, it was a misfire so that was most likely an attempt made on her life. Now on October 13, Brandon meets with a private investigator. His name is Rich Robertson and this is what he had to say. He was so anxious that we actually met in my office on a Sunday morning and he told me this wild tale of killing and missing people and religious cults and that he had been the victim of a drive-by shooting. Basically, the bottom line for him at that point was he was hoping I could find Alex Cox and the Jeep that Alex was driving, and he hoped that I could find his wife, whom he had lost contact with for about two weeks. They were going through a divorce, and they were supposed to exchange their four kids, and she didn't show up for the last meeting. And then he was the target of the drive-by shooting, and he thought that he recognized his assailant as being Alex Cox. So on October 15th at around 8.11 p.m., Melanie texts Brandon and tells him that she's actually planning to move to Boise. And she says, I have made the decision to move to Boise. We will need to create a new schedule for the kids. We can pay to go to mediation again or save the money by coming to a mutual agreement. I'm fine with whatever you decide. And then she says, the kids could remain with you in Arizona. You would have to arrange for daycare and I could have the kids for school, holidays and summers. 
or I could take the kids to Idaho and enroll them in school there and you could have the kids for school holidays and summers. Please let me know what you'd like to do. And right away, Brandon says, seriously? And she says, yes. A couple minutes later, he says, why? How is that good for the kids? I don't understand. I will keep them in Arizona and figure it out. But why? These kids are going to need us both. They need things to stay the same and to have structure. And then 15 minutes go by and he says, when are you moving? And then no answer. And he says again, is that it? No more information? That is pretty important. Can you give me more details? If you're planning on moving, you should have them, right? And by 9.05 at this point, Melanie says, I'm planning to go next week. And at the same time, Brandon says, what day? And he says again, are you still planning on having the kids this week and weekend? And that's all we have. Four days later, Tammy Daybell dies in her sleep allegedly in her sleep. By October 22nd, Brandon and Melanie's divorce is finalized and Brandon requests full custody of their four kids on the grounds that he believes Melanie was behind the attempt on his life on October 2nd. He also requested that Melanie not see the children unless there was supervision, but Melanie did not show up for court that day to challenge custody of the children. So I'm not sure why or what happened there, but she didn't show up. So by October 25th, Melanie Boudreaux's new Rexburg apartment was taken off the market, but the lease was supposedly signed on October 28th, three days after that. So Melanie signs the lease and moves into unit 174, which is beside Lori's apartment 175 at 565 Pioneer Road in Rexburg. Now, notably, the lease was signed by Melanie and said that she would be living there with her four children. That same day that Melanie signs her lease, Chad and Alex are seen at Lori's storage unit moving kids' bikes there and bringing the other items that we've seen, like the blankets with the kids' faces on it and some other memorabilia. And this makes me wonder, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If Melanie is moving to the unit beside Lori's, right, wouldn't Melanie ask where the children are? And if Alex and Chad move the kids' stuff in the storage unit, is it because they don't want Melanie to ask questions when she wonders, like, all the kids' stuff, where are they? Like, was she actually, was she actually lied to where the kids were and she's not saying now? Or... Did she know? I mean, I find this interesting that it's the same day. And what the other thing is, is these houses or these units that Melanie and Lori and Alex all rented, they're not small places. So for the little that Lori actually had, why rent a storage unit, right? But now it's starting to add up. She's hiding all the kids' stuff there. She had gun cases in there. She's hiding hiding a tire and a ba whole back of a seat of 
presumably it was the Jeep. So I find it uh, a little weird and I'm just wondering, wait a minute, is that why they moved all the stuff the same day that Melanie came to town so there wouldn't be questions asked? It could be totally separate, but that did pop into mind. Now, by the end of October, on October 31st, Melanie then reserves a U-Haul from Gilbert Self Storage in Arizona, and the rental application actually says she's moving to BYU-Idaho Student Housing in Rexburg, Idaho, and she will drop off the U-Haul at Self Storage Plus in Rexburg, which is the same place where Lori's renting her unit. So that afternoon, Melanie and Alex fly from Idaho Falls to Mesa, Arizona, and late that night, Brandon's private investigator, Rich Robertson, actually observes Alex and Melanie load up the U-Haul outside of her Chandler, Arizona home, and she throws some of the kids' stuff onto the curb. And the investigator says this, it was all kids' stuff, it was clothing, it was blankets, it was toys, mattresses, bedding, materials. It was all in a pile out there on the curb with a little cardboard sign on it that says, so by November, the Jeep that was involved in Brandon's shooting is actually located in Rexburg, funny enough, and seized with a search warrant from the Gilbert PD. Now, it is identified as the Jeep Wrangler with Texas plates, and it's also identified as the vehicle that Tylee regularly drove and was registered to the late Charles Vallow. And as we know, Tylee has been missing for quite some time, so she's not using her vehicle. And speaking of vehicle, wouldn't Melanie be wondering, why is Tylee's Jeep in the parking lot and not being used? Where's Tylee? So by November 2nd, Melanie goes to Facebook and says she's offering $10,000 reward for information that leads her to her children and her husband's whereabouts. And on November 3rd, Melanie continues to look for her children before she heads to Rexburg. And the private investigator actually follows Melanie and Alex using a GPS tracker on their vehicle as they went to friend's house looking for the kids on that day before they left for Idaho. And the investigator says, it was clear to us that she was aggressively trying to find the kids even though she left all the kids stuff on the curb. And she was traveling with Alex Cox. So that increased the anxiety for Brandon and his kids, rightly so. So by the 4th of November, Alex and Melanie arrived back in Rexburg. And the investigator says, we saw them loading the U-Haul they rented in Arizona and took to Rexburg and we saw where they were living, but we didn't see the kids. And in the Dateline special, Melanie actually mentioned that, mm, no, I, I didn't see the kids when I moved to Rexburg. And she mentioned something about she wasn't close to Tylee when she was a teenager. That's reg like, regardless if you're close to them or not, you live literally next door. Um, not only would be like, oh, you didn't, you didn't see them, but did you hear them? Because in condo units, you're sharing a wall as well. So you would probably hear JJ running around. So I find this really weird. What did Lori tell her? What did, maybe Lori lied to her, but at any rate, what did Lori say? There's no mention of that. And Melanie just playing like, oh yeah, I just, yeah, I didn't see them. Like I didn't, I think that's super wrong. I mean, she has to know something then. 
in my opinion. So then November 5th, Lori and Chad get married in Hawaii. And in the Dateline special, when Keith asked Melanie, you know, if was that marriage planned, Melanie said, and I quote, I know in our faith, sometimes it's really fast. If you know and you feel right about it, there's no sense in dating around with tons of people. But as we know, it wasn't just a short time that Lori and Chad were together. Chad was cheating on Tammy and it looks like Lori was cheating on Charles. So it goes back a lot longer than the two weeks from when Tammy died and um, till they got married. So now fast forward another week on November 12th, Uncle Alex drives Melanie four hours away to American Fork, Utah, where Brandon's parents live. And she was looking for Brandon and her kids and Brandon's parents took the kids upstairs and Brandon told Melanie that she could not be there. And a law enforcement officer called Melanie on the phone and she claimed that Brandon kidnapped her children and that she hasn't seen them in over a month. The law enforcement officer told Melanie that she could face criminal charges for trespassing if she returned. But Melanie doesn't listen and Melanie trespasses again onto Brandon's parents' property a second time around 10 p.m. on November the 14th. And Brandon's family calls 911 to report that Melanie is there again and she's ringing the doorbell, banging on the door and yelling, and she was seen going into their garage. And Brandon's dad yells, get out of my house, the police are on their way, get away from my door now. Then he tells the 911 operator that somebody tried to kill my son three weeks ago and we believe that she's involved in it. So police come and they say they see Melanie coming out of the garage when they arrive on scene. And Brandon's family said that Melanie had produced or brought a court order saying that she could take the children. And at this time, Brandon was actually in Arizona, but police cited her for criminal trespassing and told her to leave the property or she would be taken into custody. And police later found cause for a domestic violence enhancement and determined Melanie should be arrested. Melanie turned herself into the AFPD and was booked in Utah County Jail for the misdemeanor. She was released on $2,500 bail and that same day, and Alex posted $1,950 for that bail. Now, around November 15th, this is around the time that Melanie started dating Ian, give or take. In the Dateline special, it was mentioned that Melanie met Ian on a dating app two weeks before they got married called Mutual. And when I looked at the app, it said this mutual is a place where single members of the church can make meaningful connections that lead to real dating. The app was created by BYU grads who know how difficult it can be to meet others with similar interests, beliefs, and standards, especially outside of Provo. By the 19th, Melanie and Brandon's divorce is finalized. She doesn't show up and he is awarded full custody of the children. Meanwhile, somewhere around this time in mid-November, Chad and Lori returned at Rexburg from their little honeymoon in Hawaii. On November 26th, the welfare check happens. On November 27th, the FBI raid all three units. Alex's apartment, 107, Melanie's apartment, 174, and Lori's apartment, 175. 
law enforcement actually breaks the front door of Alex's apartment to get inside and they find there's nothing inside except for a couple of small items in the garage. Now, a neighbor, his name is Seth Bernard, he actually states that Lori's sister is living in apartment 174, but it's actually Lori's niece, Melanie. But Seth actually gets a heads up 10 minutes before they do the raid. The FBI calls him and said, we're about to do this raid in 10 minutes. You might want to get out. Now, also in that Dateline special, Melanie sticks up for Lori and said that Lori's move was planned and she didn't believe it was a sudden move and she planned on moving to Kauai. But as you know, that 27th, well, the 26th was the welfare check and the next day, these guys all split. So a few days later on November the 30th, Melanie marries Ian Pulowski at the Lucky Little Chapel in Las Vegas. And Melanie's uncle Alex was the witness of their ceremony, but it's signed as Alex Pastanes because he got married as well just a few hours earlier to Zulema Pastanes and he takes her last name. So what's weird is she's actually officially divorced two weeks before her marriage and at the same time she'd be starting to date Ian from this app. And in the Dateline special she was talking about the planned marriages and she said, we are all kind of doing our own things. There's no cult, there's no planned marriages in all of this that we've been accused of. So in early December as a newlywed, Ian actually texts his ex-wife Natalie and he has concerns about the attempted shooting of Melanie's ex-husband Brandon and it says she didn't know beforehand what was going to happen they made the attempt failed and told her about it after the fact and he's referring to the shooting of Brandon and Melanie not knowing on December 2nd Ian's ex-wife allegedly video calls Ian's mom who she hasn't spoken to since they got divorced like eight months before. And she supposedly relayed that she has been in contact with Melanie's ex-husband, Brandon, and he had told her Melanie was in a cult and had tried to have him killed. So that same day, Ian's mom calls Ian to tell him about the phone call from Natalie. And the next day, Natalie calls Ian on his way to work and they discuss how to keep their kids safe because they have children from the previous marriage and they talk about plans to go to talk to the police. And so the same day, Ian goes and talks to detectives and an FBI agent and Ian tells law enforcement that it's possible that Chad, Lori, and Alex plan to shoot at Brandon and that Tylee and JJ may be in serious danger. Ian also allegedly says that Alex and Zulema were staying in Las Vegas preparing earthquakes and that an earthquake would hit Salt Lake City and many possessions would happen after earthquakes due to a high number of injured. And a quick Google search says that there was a Salt Lake City earthquake on March 18th, 2020. So on that same day, on December 3rd, Melanie was supposedly interrogated by the authorities for five hours and allegedly told Ian that two of the officers were possessed with spirits of two of the original 12 disciples of Cain. On December 4th, Ian allegedly meets with the authorities again and they give Ian a recording device that looks like a thumb drive on a keychain. Ian 
wanted to record anything that could actually help lead to finding Tylee and JJ and locate Lori and Chad and understand what happened when Brandon was shot at. Now on that same day, I find this interesting. There is an email from Melanie going out to Brandon Boudreaux or somebody is or somebody that knows Brandon Boudreaux. So I shared the information that you gave me and relayed it and basically on their wedding night she laid out the whole cult thing but didn't say it was a cult and he was just so confused. Anyway, she told him that in March a demon possessed my body and my spirit came to her in a vision or dream and told her this. She was interrogated by the police for five hours yesterday and told my ex that the two of the police officers were possessed with the spirits of two of the original 12 disciples of Cain. She told him that my kids' spirits were full of light, but that can change basically at any moment. She has isolated him pretty badly, like she has driven him to work every day this week for one reason or another, won't let him talk to his family, makes him listen to weird podcasts where he feels this pit in his stomach, but she tells him that there are light and dark weapons and the bad feelings are the dark weapons. She said that in a past life, she was the niece of Jesus. Look, my ex is not the best person in the world, but I'm legitimately scared for my own life and my kid's life and my ex's. I heard something about a missing person that she may be involved in. I don't know the details on that one. I have literally no idea what to do. I think he is planning on going to the police for some help and I'm thinking she might blame me and come after me. I mean, if she is convinced that I'm a demon and God tells her to kill me, I could end up another missing person's case. He is terrified that he asked me to take the kids away on his weekend, which is next weekend, because he doesn't want them around her. He has never done that ever. He said that she didn't want me learning her last name because I would contact her ex-husband and he would tell me that she tried to kill him and she's in a cult. I've never seen anyone so terrified. He told me to look up the names Alex Cox and Chad Daybell. I'm so sorry for dragging you into this, but I have no idea what to do. Can you just get this email to the right people? Have them help us? Have us help them? I don't know. Thanks, Natalie Pulowski. Now, by December 5th, Natalie and Ian were interviewed by the Rexburg Police Department. And for two weeks, Ian actually records Melanie. And in the Dateline special, it was said that Ian actually ends up telling Melanie that he recorded her for two weeks and she forgave him and they're moving forward. But Ian has been sending texts to his ex-wife Natalie and on December 8th, it said, um, I don't know if I can convince her to go to family court hearing on Wednesday. I'm trying to, but she got an answer last night from God. Her uncles have her so wrapped up, uncles plural. They're telling her she needs to move to Ammon. That's not going to happen because I'm not leaving Rexburg. They think it has something to do with jurisdiction. Dumbest thing ever, don't respond. Just wanted to update you earlier because I had a quick second to call. Stay safe. Also, there's another text that says, don't respond. I need you to encourage Brandon to keep info he gets on the down low until I get this sorted out. I want to help, but it will be tough if every starts figuring out what I'm learning. Must be a typo. She didn't know beforehand what was going to happen. They made the attempt, failed, and told her about it after the fact. I understand he doesn't want the kids around her because of all this, but I believe if she can see them, it will put a huge dent in her trust with her uncles. She's scared and had been told her two middle children are dead. She has a family court date on December 11th. I'm trying to get her to go. 
Then on December 12th, her uncle Alex dies in Arizona. And in the special, in the Dateline special, Melanie was saying before Alex's death, he was phoning her. They talked every other day, she said, and that he was saying he was having some trouble breathing. She also said that he was quite a healthy guy, which I don't agree with, but that's my own opinion. She actually said super healthy guy. By the 19th, the detective allegedly contacts Ian and tells him that they have another warrant for the Rexburg apartment of Alex and allegedly asks for the code to the garage so they didn't have to break down the door. Ian shared the garage code, um, which I find is interesting that he would have the garage code to Alex's, but that's what it says in the news. And law enforcement allegedly went with a forensics team to look for evidence of JJ having been there. That same day, Ian admitted to Melanie that he has been speaking with the authorities. He said, I didn't know how she would react, but I couldn't hang on to the stress anymore. Of course, she was hurt, feeling betrayed, but she reassured me that she loves me and that she understands why I did it. So in January 7th, Melanie Boudreaux's court date was for the trespassing charge. And January 14th, she is interviewed again by Rexburg Police Department. By February 16th, Ian Pulowski brings his ex-wife Natalie his laptop where she finds a weird note about Melanie and the group that she was involved with. And Natalie said she believes that Ian wrote this memo. So this is what it says. When Melanie began sharing all of these things with me, I tried to keep an open mind. I'd only met her four days previous but felt very comfortable around her. I believe there is more to the gospel than what I have seen so far, but I never thought it would sound like this. The ideas seemed harmless at first, and she sounded pretty certain of some of them. She talked about how she'd learned some of these things in the temple and others from Chad and Lori. Upon first meeting Chad and Lori, I didn't get a bad impression of them, but they did seem different. I don't think anything of that, as I felt like that's a fairly normal feeling to experience. I didn't give them much thought as they said they were planning on taking off and that I'd be taking the reins concerning care of Melanie. They said they'd be going to Hawaii, invited me to come visit sometime. Later, Melanie explained porting and that they could travel there by that method. The first time hearing of all these new beliefs was a jolt. I was looking for someone spiritual, but this was a leap beyond that into concerning territory. I had fears and doubts, but I trusted Melanie and wanted to give it a fair chance. So I continued to listen and ask questions in hopes it would click for me. It never did. There were fun and exciting ideas, but it felt like many of them were ripped straight out of a Dungeons and Dragons manual. Between the stats, accounts of dark and light weapons, and words spoken in blessings, it sounded like someone had created a tabletop RPG based on the Bible. While living something like that appealed to me, I couldn't find anything to confirm it as I prayed and asked. I figured anyone called to something like this would struggle, but how else would they be made aware of things like this? I continued to try to keep an open mind and proceed with caution. Melanie began to share that she feared for the lives of her two of her children based on a dream she'd had where they came to her. They brought her tidings of great joy. Her daughter thanked her for allowing her the freedom to use her agency until the end. This concerned me and made my heart ache for her. I felt there was no way anything could have happened without people finding out. We married faster than any sane couple would, but we both felt it was right. On her wedding night, she began to elaborate on the ideas she'd share earlier about her children coming to her. She explained zombies and her fears about what Chad and Lori stated concerning the original spirits being caught in limbo until the body's death. 
She stated that Brandon had been possessed by a demon or another dark entity sometime after June of this year. She was told either through revelation or by Chad or that something would happen to him, that something needed to happen to him. In order for his spirit to progress and for the Lord's plan to continue, she didn't take well to the idea of her husband dying as part of the Lord's plan, but didn't think action would be taken by anyone. She still loves Brandon and would never wish any ill will on him. It just sounded to her like it would be something that happened on its own when it was his time. This is where things started becoming concerning to me. She shared the idea that Chad and Lori could have directed Al to take a shot at Brandon. It wasn't anything she was sure about. The concern began when she was called into Gilbert PD and asked about Chad, Lori, and Alex after the attempt on Brandon's life. She later was given the impression that the bullet needed to move five inches so as not to hit Brandon. Initially, to me, it sounded like this was told to her by Chad. The discussion moved to Chad and Lori's missing children. At the time, only JJ was counted as missing and the Rexburg PD had conducted raids on Melanie's apartment along with Al's. Melanie had been told by Chad and Lori that their children had been possessed and had become zombies. She shared concerns that she's been told Brandon needed to die and that may indicate that Tylee and JJ needed to die as well. She told me that she was worried that Al may have had to take care of the kids. She explained that Al had great faith and never wavered in his trust in the Lord. No task would be too difficult or great for him. When I asked for clarification, she restated her concern verbatim. At that point, I became severely worried, but told myself there's no way I just married into a situation so sinister. I spent the next two days trying to justify my actions and reassure myself that everything was fine, but I couldn't get to that point. My ex-wife, Natalie, had been asking for Melanie's name so she can check her out on social media and get an idea of who she is. Melanie had been adamant that I not share her full name with anyone for fear that Brandon may locate and harass her. I couldn't justify that and eventually gave Natalie Melanie's full name. On Tuesday, December 2nd, I got a call from my mother. She'd just gotten off the phone with Natalie. When we divorced, Natalie made a point to cut herself off from my entire family and hadn't spoken to any of them for at least eight months. She had made as little contact with me as possible, but hadn't been unkind since the initial conflict of the divorce. My mother told me she'd just received a video call from Natalie. Natalie was terrified. She'd managed to reach Brandon through his business and heard his side of things. She'd been told Melanie was in a cult and that she had tried to have him killed. While I didn't and still don't believe she had anything to do with this attempted murder, I was still terrified at the possibility. The next morning on the way to work, Natalie called and we were discussing how to handle this in order to keep our kids safe. She told me she'd been going to meet with the police. I told her I'd go along and lay out everything I understood. I saw two possibilities. The... First was that Melanie isn't who I thought she was, and I keep myself and my family out of dangerous situation. The second was that Melanie has been taken advantage of, and I'm going to get her out of a messy situation and healed. When meeting with the police, I intended to share things as I understood. Detectives Hope and Hermesiel were present along with an FBI agent named Ricky. I've since shared all of my concerns with Melanie and have gotten clarifications on some of them. What I shared with the police were the ideas that Chad, Lori, and Alex may have planned shooting at Brandon and that Tylee and JJ may be in serious danger if Melanie's fears had any validity. If shooting at Brandon was indeed based on the idea that he was not longer actually Brandon and needed to die as part of the Lord's plan, then the kids' lives could be forfeit based on the idea that they're not really Tylee and JJ anymore. 
I shared that Melanie had concerns about them participating in the shooting and was against anyone trying to hurt him. She couldn't see them doing these things, but she also knew that they would follow the Lord's will as they saw it. I shared ideas about earthquakes being prepared in Salt Lake City and that it was believed that there would be a time when the quakes hit that many possessions would occur there due to the high number of injured there'd be. Such a thing would be a huge threat to God's plan and would need to be dealt with directly. Alan Zulema had stayed in Las Vegas and were preparing earthquakes at the time I spoke with the police. I shared concerns for the safety of my kids and Natalie. I offered to help in any way I can. I then allowed them to pull data from my phone. I met with them again the following afternoon and restated what I knew for a few other detectives. Lieutenant Ball and another FBI agent named Travis. They shared some mild concern about me potentially spying for Chad and Lori. I explained that I was there because I was concerned primarily for the safety of my kids and that I wanted to get Melanie out of this, if possible. They gave me a recording device that looked like a thumb drive on a keychain. My plan was to record anything I thought could help locate Tylee and JJ, locate Chad and Lori, and understand what happened with Brandon was shot at. If I thought Chad and Lori were going to be calling, I'd turn on the recorder and just let it run until they'd hung up. I don't feel that anything substantial was recorded as Chad and Lori never talked about the kids or their location. Most of the conversations consisted of everyone commiserating about the current circumstances, discussing religious ideas, and just catching up. In addition to the recordings, I would talk with Ricky and he'd let me know about things that may come up in conversation. He was never specific, but would give me enough information for me to know when it came up. These tips turned into Tammy's body being exhumed and Al's passing. On December 19th, Detective Hermesio contacted me and told me that they had another warrant for Al's apartment next door. He asked if I'd give them the code to the garage so that they would have to break the door in. I shared the code. I didn't see any reason not to. They went in with forensic forensics team and looked for any evidence of JJ having been there. Melanie saw them there and spent the afternoon at my apartment. That night, I went to the apartment and looked around to see what they had been doing or if they'd taken anything. I also want to see the warrants to understand what they'd been looking for. After looking around, I went to see Melanie at my apartment. I finally broke down and told her that I'd spoken with police and that I don't believe any of this. I didn't know how she would react but I couldn't hang on to the stress anymore. Of course, she was hurt, feeling betrayed, but she reassured me that she loves me and that she understands why I did it. At the time, I didn't share that I'd been recording anything. I wasn't sure if we'd hear from Chad and Lori again. Over the following week, we had discussions on our situations and I came to understand things a little better. She was legitimately afraid of the ideas I'd share with the police and FBI, but they weren't anything she had any proof of. As I've spoken with her and dug into the details, I've come to believe that she truly doesn't know anything about who shot at Brandon or where the kids have gone. She only has what-if scenarios that she shared. I'm worried that I jumped the gun and have sent the authorities on yet another wild goose chase along with prompting them to light up the national media with pieces of what I shared. My intent was to protect my family and help solve the case of the kids' disappearance, not smear anyone in public eye. I certainly didn't want to give Brandon my ammo to hurt Melanie any more than he already has. I still have my doubts, primarily why not turn to the police first instead of disappearing if you claim your life is in danger? Why leave your innocent niece here to clean up the mess and encourage her not to cooperate with the authorities? Why encourage her not to fight for her kids? Her ex-husband now has temporary sole custody as a result. Why not simply provide proof that the kids are okay and put an end to this insanity? 
Isn't it odd that the two detectives assigned to this case happen to be two of the Kane's dark 50? Everyone trying to do their job in saving these kids are either evil or deceived. Your kids are missing and it doesn't come up once during a handful of lengthy conversations. Exactly. There are so many more that I have. I don't ever want to have anything to do with these two after this. Melanie has been put through the ringer because of their paranoia and now is in the hot seat because I went to the police and tried to help. I know she's done nothing wrong and I want her free from this. I will no longer openly cooperate with the police or FBI, but I will through a lawyer. My final straw was when I received a call on Friday from Ricky where he threatened charges of lying to a federal office and or being an accessory in the disappearance of Tylee and JJ because Melanie couldn't clearly answer questions about the religious aspects of the investigation. After I shared my doubts with her, her world shattered. She couldn't answer these questions because she doesn't know what she believed about those things anymore. There was so much information dumped on her by Chad and Lori that she can't remember what she learned from them from the podcast she listened to or on her own. A 20-year veteran FBI agent throwing a hissy fit after one shaky interview tells me all I need to know about how they want to handle this. She didn't trust authorities before because of how poorly the AF treated her when she went to pick up her kids with a court order in hand. Now in the Dateline special, there was a comment I did mention on my last video, but because I'm doing this timeline, it's important to talk about. Ian actually says, I'm starting to see Melanie's perspective. This isn't all the hype that it's made up to be. So I'm wondering what the conversations were actually of um, talking about Tylee and JJ. I mean, bottom line is where's the kids? So why is all of a sudden him feeling like, you know, he was so concerned before, but now it's like, you know, I'm starting to see Melanie's perspective now and it's really not the big hype that everybody's made it out to be. So that's concerning to me. This brings up all kinds of questions. And also, Melanie was heard saying, sometimes children are full of light and just like that, they go dark. So whether she's talking about that chart that Chad made or she's talking about, you know, somebody living and then dying, we're not sure, but I'm sure they're going to get to the bottom of it. Do you think Melanie knows more than what she's saying? And do you think Lori moved things away from her apartment into the storage unit so that Melanie wouldn't ask questions and that made it easier for her to lie to her? Or do you think Lori actually told Melanie what was going on? Let me know in your thoughts below. I'm really curious and we'll have a chit chat. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't done so already. Click the like button and click the share button. Thank you so much for watching. See you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.